Aussies only. Thanks to GLG Green Life Group, leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. For our latest edition of Aussies Only, we check in with a man who was a Davis Cup star for Australia, picked at 24 in the world as well, and some memorable moments during, as we said, those Davis Cup ties in the 90s, but but also uh, was a mainstay of Australian tennis all throughout that period after bursting onto the scene through the late 80s. I speak of Richard Fromberg. Richard, thanks very much for jumping on with us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Now, obviously, going back to where it all started, your origins are in Tasmania. Tasmania, a proud sporting state, albeit a small sporting state, but obviously they've they've filtered through some terrific players and terrific athletes across a number of sports from AFL, cricket, tennis, cycling, etc. What was it like growing up there and, and how were you exposed to tennis? No, it was great growing up there. I started tennis just on my own accord. My parents didn't play. We just had a racket flying around the house and brick wall was my sort of opponent for the first year of my tennis career, really. So I was quite addicted and played against brick wall every day and, and then asked my parents if I could play in a tournament. So that's sort of how it started for me. Was it a case that once you started playing tournaments, was there a moment where you realised, A, it's a passion, but B, I might have some natural aptitude that could take me somewhere here? Yeah, it was funny with me. I sort of made up my mind before I even started tennis that I wanted to be a tennis player. I was quite a late starter, really, uh, almost 10 years old, which is quite late in tennis terms. But I became uh, the number one in Australia within a couple of years. I got very addicted to it and I played every day and I improved out of sight. Were there heroes or, or players you modelled yourself on? As you said, it was a lot of a lot of it was self-driven, but was it through that period? Was there a player that you, you thought, well, that's who I'd like to play like? Uh, well, I always looked up to the Swedish players at that time, and that was Bjorn Borg. Then uh, Mats Wallander came along, who I really enjoyed watching play. Stefan Edberg, of course, but uh, yeah, just the way that they carried themselves on the court, I wanted to be like them. There, there was a Australian Institute of Sports scholarship, as I understand, in there as well. How did that come about? Yeah, in Canberra, uh, all the best players around Australia went there, and, and I went there as a 14-year-old. Uh, stayed there for four or five years, and basically went on the tour from there, really. So that was fantastic for me. Were there any eye-openers? We've spoken to a lot of players who, obviously, when they start touring and eventually you go overseas and, and those sorts of things happen, were there any moments that were either tougher than you realised or were you prepared for that type of thing when you start going through that you know, period of, of months on end away from home? Always tough periods. Injuries in particular were the hardest for me. I had a few injuries uh, when I started to grow a lot and stress fractures and that sort of stuff. So you're never quite sure how you're going to go until you sort of get there. So there's always those tough times. But I had a lot of determination and uh, I, I knew what I wanted to do. So I was able to break through at a relatively young age. Are those AO juniors you mentioned breaking through at a young age, finalist in, in singles and doubles as a, I think you would have been 16 or 17 at the time. Take us through what that experience was like, but even that blend early in your career of being able to do it in, in singles and dubs. Yeah, no, I had a pretty successful junior career. Really enjoyed playing the junior Grand Slams. Junior Wimbledon, I was actually quite close to winning. I lost in the semifinals to the guy that won it in a really close match. So that was a great tournament for me. And yeah, it wasn't until I was about 17 or 18 that I really thought I'd have a good chance to become a good player. Well, were there some names around in the juniors then who obviously went on to be superstars or players that you saw at that age and you thought, well, he's that he's going to be pretty special and it turned out to be that that case who was going through juniors at the same time? Probably the best couple of juniors didn't play. They played, they were already in open centres. That was Andre Agassi, Jim Correa and a couple of others and they were my age. I played against 
Ivanisevic in the quarters of the French Open juniors who beat me. Turned out to be a great player. I played also the number one junior in the world a couple of times and I beat him very easily and uh, he turned out to be not not become a good player. So it's hard to always pick who's going to uh, come through and who's not in juniors. Yeah, obviously we had that where, where it was you know Federer and Hewitt sort of emerging at the same time and then Leighton obviously probably hit the big time a bit earlier and then obviously Federer ended up transitioning sort of past that later on in his career and I know we'll, we'll get to that point a little bit later on but you did play Roger when he was about 17 I think. Was there an indication? I think he beat you the first time but you got him a couple of years later uh, was it clear at that point that he was an enormous talent or was it still a bit rough around the edges well certainly when I played him as a 17 year old I walked off the court thinking he was just amazing really some of the stuff he was doing I didn't think I played badly and I thought I had a great draw playing a 17 year old who I hadn't heard of before and he beat me just playing too good he went through a stage where he was a little bit fragile mentally in the next few years and the time that I did beat him I felt like I won a close first set and then the second set he wasn't quite there mentally so that was the part of the game that he needed to really toughen up on and once he got that right yeah he was unstoppable. In terms of some of those early players in your career was there a matchup very early where you thought well this is what the level requires of me when you'd gone through juniors up into the, the proper big time where you're like okay this is how the uh, the absolute top echelon do it and you were able to take learnings from that to, to move forward? Yeah I think so. A fantastic year in 1990 which was sort of my breakthrough year, and I won a couple of tournaments. But I also had a win over Pete Sampras, who was a young Pete Sampras. It was the year that he first won the US Open. And later in the year, I also beat Andre Agassi. I guess it was that first big win against Sampras, who I knew was going to be a very, very good player, uh, that gave Bumper to feel like I had a chance against anyone I played at that time. We know that Davis Cup was massive, and obviously it's gone through some changes in the last few years, some say for the, the worse, and there'd be a school of thought around that but obviously it was very big all through that period how significant was that run that, that you guys went on in in 1990 and uh, even you yourself how strong you were in that final beating a grand slam champion in michael chang and then obviously nearly beating uh, andre agassi well first of all with davis cup it's it's a bit of a disastrous change that they've made i'm expecting more changes in the future a little bit more back to how it was through the 90s davis cup well for me it was the most important event that i was going to play in and it was the pinnacle playing for australia and my first ever Davis Cup match was an away tie, which happened to be a final. First match ever was against Andre Agassi. So, yeah, that was still probably my greatest experience on the tennis court, uh, just walking out there with 10,000 people screaming for Agassi. He was like a rock star. I went into that match quite confident because I'd actually had a win over him about three months earlier. So I thought I was a chance and we had a, a great match, a five-set match, and he got me in the end. That same year, you won your first top singles title as well in, in Italy. Uh, I guess the significance of, of getting that result as well. And then I think you won another one a couple of months later. Both of those on clay, interestingly. Yeah, clay seemed to suit my game pretty well, especially when I was younger. The style of clay court tennis changed a little bit and it favoured players with a big serve and a big forehand, especially the high forehand because the ball bounces very high on clay. Yeah, that first win, I remember that very well against Marco Rossi, who was an Olympic gold medalist. That was a, a great win in the final, 7-6, set, I think it was. So very special to get your first title. Uh, what did you learn, I guess, from 1990 that would carry you forward? I think your, your next really strong year, 1993, where you made it to uh, at least the third round of three 
of the four majors, you, you equal career best run at the Australian Open that year and another run to the, the Davis Cup finals as well. Uh, through that, what was the main takeaway that, that perhaps served you well next time around in, in 93? Still the highlight for me in 93 was Davis Cup, a quarterfinal against Italy from memory uh, that year, which was a very special tie for me. Playing the deciding match against the Italians away home was, was a huge win for me. Final, I won my first match against Mark Kevin Golner, who was having a great year. Uh, that was a, a grind, like a five-hour match, and I saved six match points in that match. And we were very close to winning that tie. Unfortunately, the Woodies got upset in the doubles, and, and they were strong in the end. But uh, Michael Stick was their top player. But, uh, yeah, playing another Davis Cup final was the highlight of the year for me. That Australian Open of, of that particular year, it's a match that gets replayed occasionally. It pops up on if there's a rain delay or something like that against Brett Stephen of New Zealand, which people may or may not remember, but 8-6 in the fifth. Uh, how often do you sort of look back at that and think, I mean, I think you would have played Sampras in the quarters had you have got through a quarterfinal on home soil, obviously would have been nice, but uh, a memorable match, albeit on the wrong side. Yeah, it was. It was one of those matches where I still look back even now. I had a couple of match points on my serve. I remember but one of my serves was an ace that was a lead. That's uh, yeah, so close. Really tough one to take. That's the way tennis goes sometimes. Yeah, if I could have one sort of point that I could take back, it would definitely be match point in that match. Well, there are a couple of others at Grand Slams where you felt you were, I guess, best placed. Uh, obviously, in terms of going on a deep run with the draw or, or things like that, that was your best opportunity? I can't remember the year, but I was in the fourth round of the Australian Open where I lost 7-6 in the fourth set to Carol Pichera, who would say, good player, but playing very well at that time. He actually, in the next round, beat Pete Sampras in straight sets. So he was on a, a good run. I was coming into that tournament with a lot of form because I'd made the final in Auckland and almost beat uh, Marcelo Rios, who was number one in the world very soon after that. Perhaps a little bit unlucky against Kachera because I was hoping to play him outdoors in windy conditions, which would have favoured me. But yeah, we, we had rain and it was so the roof was closed and he beat me in a really close match. So that was also a really good opportunity for me to go deep into a Grand Slam. The second of the, the two fourth round appearances, that one in, in 98, we mentioned playing Federer that year. I don't know if you're aware of the exact statistic that I think you're one of only six Australians or seven I think it is because Kokonakis beat him after that was published uh, to have beaten Roger Federer in a, uh, in a match. Did you come across any others around about that time like Roger where you, you were actually able to pinpoint very quickly that they were going to go on and be absolute superstars? There were some players I played against that just outplayed me but it didn't happen Often, most matches you walk off and you think I had a bit of a chance. I remember playing Nicholas Escudé once, who beat me very easily, and I thought he was going to be a fantastic player. He probably didn't end up being quite as good as, as I predicted, but there were some very talented players that were also too good for me on the day. Hisham Arazi once beat me quite easily. Uh, he was a very good player, but yeah, week in, week out, some players struggled a little bit, so you always had a chance, uh, even though perhaps some players were better than you. It's a long year, and just got to give yourself a chance, but yeah. Yeah, to me, yeah, well, Federer was a standout. Sampras was a real standout. Man. He was the sort of player that he only had to break you once and then you were never going to break him back. Pat Rafter also was a tough opponent for me, having played him a few times and very close matches, but he won the close matches. So he was tough when it came down to the crunch. I didn't play against Philippoussis, but uh, as a young kid, I knew that he was going to be a very good player. Was it natural on tour for the Australian players to kind of stick together? Do people do their own thing really off with their own team or, or is there that sort of bond between 
between Australian players, yourself and Rafter Filipousis in the locker rooms and those sorts of things if you are away from home? Australian players have stuck together traditionally over the years, perhaps changed a bit last 20, 30 years or so, where the game's changed a bit and players have sort of got their own team of people and it's become a little bit more individual. And for me, it was a bit of a mix. I enjoyed hanging around the Australian players, but also I got on well with uh, some of the overseas guys too, Swedish players and some of the Spaniards as well. In terms of when it started to come towards an end uh, in the early part of the 2000s and, and through until when you, you gave it away, was there a moment where the, the penny dropped? They often say players wake up in the morning and you know all of the work that they've been doing, It's there's a, a day where they're like, okay, it's it's not becoming a grind, but it's I'm not sure I'm as up for it as I was before. Is there a moment where that, that sort of hunger happens or was the reason different for you? For me, it was... In, it, bit of a chronic injury. I could play, but uh, I wasn't pulling up very well with a, with an arm injury. So I couldn't back up matches. Because of that, my ranking dropped. And then I thought, well, I'm going to have to play qualify, which is three matches. I really couldn't sort of play day in, day out at that stage. So I had to think about doing something else. In terms of that, what, what's post-career look like for you? I know you've done a bit of coaching and academy type stuff. What what are you uh, what are you up to these days? Yeah, doing some private coaching, some young kids. I coach in one of the private schools, the first team there, which is Brighton Grammar. We've got some good players in our team there. Still pretty busy with tennis, still sort of coaching every day and enjoying trying to help some young kids. What do you miss most about the, I guess, the competitive grind of being on tour? Is it that or are there things that you know when you when you reflect back on your career that you you perhaps miss the most about the day-to-day life of it miss competing uh, probably more than anything else certainly don't miss traveling around the world and have something competitive get quite addicted to it feeling of having a great win is something special and i think most tennis players talk about the tennis the same way that they miss the competitive side of things how does that compare in a coaching sense if you've got one of your players that you're sort of seeing them improve and you're seeing them take strides can that sort of joy and and almost that competitive magic be emulated through someone else? Yeah, in a different way it can. Very rewarding to get a good result uh, with a, a good junior. Look, I, I, I've never left tennis. When I when I retired, I went straight into a coaching job with the Australian Institute of Sport. I coached uh, a junior Wimbledon winner, which was a big thrill for me, and also a junior Wimbledon runner-up. Both guys ended up playing Davis Cup tennis. Yeah, it's got uh, a lot of rewards coaching in a different way, a similar feeling as well. I understand Victoria is, is home these days, but when you reflect on Tassie and some of the strides they've taken in in sport with an NBL side, obviously an AFL license and various other bits and pieces and obviously some of the success they've had with a couple of Tasmanians, Captain Australia in cricket and things like that. Uh, Does it sort of swell you with pride thinking about, um, I guess, the tiny island, so to speak, bringing about a number of elite sportsmen and women? It does, actually. It does. Um, I think Tassie's a fantastic place to play sport. I know with myself, I was a standout junior in Tasmania, and I had a lot of people trying to trying to help me, and uh, I played against all the men at a young age. Um, so I was sort of fast-tracked my development through that help. It's a very much outdoors environment in Tasmania, uh, very sporty, plenty of room to run around. And it's a great place to grow up and play sport. Last few before we let you go. What do you think of the current Australian crop? Obviously, unfortunately, we haven't seen Nick at any of the majors this year and won't play at the, the US. He's 30 next year, so obviously you start looking at, at what the back end might look like there. Demon Orr obviously battles away and, and has worked himself into the top 20 and had a good run. Um, Popper and Thompson, Kubler, these sorts of players. What do you think of the, the men's crop at the moment? I think that they've all done very well and uh, some great results. 
some of the players in the top 100. It's been a fantastic effort. The depth is not bad in, on the tour at the moment. We, we do need some more juniors uh, to try and come through, and I think we're sort of a little bit away from that at the moment. From a numbers point of view, we're, we're pretty solid. And, uh, yeah, Alex Dimonar is probably my favourite Australian player, just for his uh, the way he goes about it and the way he fights, knocking on the door for it to be a top 10 player would be a fantastic effort. And on Nick, obviously career best year last year, this year has been a bit of a write-off. Is there still sand in the hourglass, do you think, for him to maybe get another run at it? I'd say yes, uh, but it's always hard to, to tell with Nick. It's purely about his motivation. If he if he really wants it, he certainly, he's probably the most talented player on the tour, so... He's not the sort of player that needs to perhaps try and spend six hours on the day and work hard off the court to, to get himself back. He, he's, he's able to get back very easily. He's got the best serve in the game at the moment, which takes him a long way. Having said that, for him to do well, uh, it's sort of shown that he does need to play a few matches. It's hard to just go out there with, with no matches under his belt. Uh, Wimbledon is his best example where he made the final and... Uh, he had two great lead-up tournaments. He was always going to do well at Wimbledon, I thought, that year. But there's been a lot of times he's played where he's just sort of rocked up, having not had uh, matches under his belt. And, yeah, it takes its toll after after two or three rounds. Yeah, less than, than ideal prep. And, and I guess one that I've always been curious on, that, that, that there was all that talk around the next generation, and clearly Alcaraz looks like he'll lead that group. But... We've had guys like Sitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, all of these sorts of players that have popped up and had their moments. And all of them have probably carried some scars from finals defeats against Djokovic or Nadal. Can you see any of those guys pushing through? Medvedev looks like he's not quite the same after that Australian Open final loss last year. Sitsipas has lost a couple. Can you be not mentally shot, but mentally damaged by playing against some of those elite talents? Yeah, I, I would say yes. But looking at the tour at the moment and, and Djokovic, you know, he's not young anymore. I think that he's a touch slower than at his best. Myself, Rafa's having his last year, next year. Guys like Switchpass Medvedev, I sort of look at who else, you know. I think they're, they're going to probably win Grand Slams because if Alcaraz loses. And Alcaraz uh, is, is a standout. But at the same time, he can have the, the, the very rare bad day as well where he just makes a few errors. So I think that he's uh, beatable, but uh, at his best, he's he's a clear standout now. Richard, been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, giving us some thoughts on your uh, on your career and and sharing that. And as you say, some some halcyon days and wonderful times watching Davis Cup finals late at night and and things like that. And um, yeah, it's been fantastic to sit down and have a bit of a chat. Okay, no problems. Thanks for having me on. The first serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, in it to win.